0: Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. John 20, 19-31 On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, "'Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you.' And with that, he breathed on them and said, "'Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven.'" Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in His name. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Drew. Good morning, everybody. Happy Easter. That's right. Uh, did you know for uh, the church calendar, for people who follow the church calendar, that Easter is not merely a day, but it's actually, it's actually a season. It's actually lasts 50 days. That's longer than the season of Lent. The season of Lent only lasts 40 days, but for Easter, the season of Easter, which they call Tide, it lasts 50 days. And I actually I love it because uh, as a society, as people, we move on so quickly from things. We have, a, we have a tendency to have an experience, move on, what's the next thing? And this season of Easter, slow, it slows us down for us to really think about what are the implications of Jesus' resurrection. We need, to, we need to linger here. We don't need to move, move quickly beyond this. So we need to stop here and just really think, what does it mean that Jesus rose from the dead, and what is it, how does it change my life? So as a church, we're, we're going to linger here for a while. We're not going to do 50 days because we had other plans, but we are going to linger here for three weeks, and we're going to consider what does the meaning of Easter really mean for us. I've been really curious, uh, just in, in a new, fresh way, I've been really curious to look at the Gospels, the, the accounts of Jesus' life, and to look at what did Jesus do? There's like this little bit of time between when Jesus rose from the dead and when He ascended into heaven. There's this little bit of time where Jesus was physically here on this, on this world. What did He spend His time doing? That's been really intriguing to me in a new and fresh way. What I've, seen, what I've seen is that Jesus did not come with a heavenly host. He didn't come with, with the type of worldly power that we would expect. He didn't even come in this I told you so mentality. What Jesus did was what Jesus always did. Jesus came here to seek out those people who were far from Him. Jesus came and sought out His followers though they deserted Him, though they abandoned Him, though they reject Him. Jesus wasn't done. He, just like all of time, He was filled with compassion and saw not their failure, not their rejection, but He saw their need for a Savior and Jesus still showed up in their life. Jesus was and is always a pursuing God, Jesus pursued people. It just wasn't just what He did, it is who Jesus is. And if Jesus wasn't done pursuing his people full of regret, full of shame and confusion, in this in-between time, we can know for sure that Jesus still is not done pursuing people, his loved ones. And I believe his purpose was not only to show that he was resurrected, but he he showed up again and again and again to resurrect their faith, to resurrect their hope, to resurrect their joy. So we're picking up in that scripture that Drew just read just a second ago. We're picking up where we left off last Sunday. If you remember last Sunday, Mary Magdalene, John and Peter, they all went to the empty tomb after Mary was there first and saw that the tomb was empty. And while John and Peter were, were back away in their home, Mary was lingering there, she and she stayed there at the empty tomb, and Jesus showed up. The resurrected, the resurrected Jesus showed up, He called her by name, and then He was able to see her clearly. And then, Mary was the first evangelist, the first witness, and Mary was sent to go tell the other disciples. And how do you think those men responded to her? Disbelief? Doubt? What did she really see? Annoyance or hope? Confusion? I think these disciples were traumatized by just the, the vision of Jesus that they had in their minds, and it all fell apart. And so when they hear this, this Word, it's not, they're not even ready for it. They're in such an, a mental and emotional state. They're, they're not ready to receive it yet. But then... We have John 20, 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, the same very day that Jesus showed up to Mary, on the same very day, when the disciples were together with the the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. The disciples were behind locked doors of fear. They were locked by fear. And Jesus went through that barrier you notice what He gives. First off, Jesus gives peace. You will see that word peace over and over and over again in this passage. Why? Because Jesus being alive again gives us peace. And the biblical idea of peace is, is more than just not having conflict, it's actually, this word peace is about when things can be restored again, when things are renewed, things are reordered. It is, it is about a deep, soulful restoration in the, deep within you and a restoration of your surroundings. And Jesus came from death, showed Himself alive again to give us peace, to make things whole again. And after Jesus had said this in verse 20, After Jesus had said this, He showed them His hands and His side where where He was wounded from from His crucifixion. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw Jesus. This moment of great fear and sorrow is transformed by Jesus' presence to be a time of great joy, delight, and celebration. Again, Jesus said in verse 21, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. So Jesus did more than just give peace, but Jesus said, I'm not done with you yet. Though you couldn't understand what was happening, and though you deserted me in my dying moment when I was left alone, I am not done with you as the Father has sent me. I'm going to send you. And then Jesus said, with that, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Such an interesting act here in this moment. These disciples trying to figure things out and Jesus breathes on them. (laughs) Let's just say that's a little bit odd. He breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Something that's important to know for for someone from the Jewish upbringing that these men were, in, and for the, the original readers of this word, they would have heard the fact that Jesus was breathing on them and they would have immediately had a connection that might be lost on us. The way in which that humanity was created it was from the dust of this ground, the dirt from this ground, but they weren't alive. They weren't alive fully until God breathed in them. And then all of a sudden there was life. And I think these men gathered in this room this evening, they had experienced, they were they weren't fully alive. They had their life taken from them. And here Jesus breathes life in them again. By God's Spirit, they were alive again. They received joy and hope. They received uh, clarity of vision. They received a sense of purpose. They received God's Spirit. And their bodies in that room, were they were made alive again. They inhaled the life of Jesus and they were restored. The disciples were overjoyed. All but one disciple. His name was Thomas. Thomas wasn't happy because Thomas wasn't in the room. And I'm not sure about many of you, but I do not like being out of the room when something great happens. That's why I'm afflicted with something called FOMO. Fear of missing out. Anyone else here? I remember when I first moved to Austin, like the worst time of the year for me was South by Southwest. It's two weeks of events and it's, there's so many events. It's hard to know what to do. I would, like, this was before I have kids where I had actually, like, time. But I would, like, get out a calendar and I'd, you know, make up an agenda. We're going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm gonna, and I would be in my little scooter in East Austin in downtown, and downtown. I'd try to hit up everything. And you know, I was miserable because it's impossible to do it all. I was missing out. And then all of a sudden, last minute, like, oh, Justin Timberlake just had an impromptu concert. What? Where? And I remember there was one time where I was at this one, this one bar listening to this band play and I went to go check out this other thing and like literally I, hear, I heard, you know that Bill Murray was bartending there later on like an hour after you left? Bill Murray? Like my hero, what? And I was just like, I just am afflicted with fear of missing out. I don't like not being in the room and Thomas, he was, he was not in the room for this moment. And I think Uh, He was frustrated. He was confused. What is going on? And so this is how Thomas responded in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And instead of being celebratory and excited and hopeful, he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Hence, we call him what? Doubting Thomas. Kind of a a very mean spirited thing we've done to Thomas, but I actually get it. I get it. When someone's been traumatized, like Thomas had been, you learn that hope and belief is a dangerous thing. You know that line from Shawshank Redemption? Remember that scene? Or hope, be, be careful with hope. It's a dangerous thing. We've, we've many, many ways, we've learned that the more hope, the more belief we have, the greater capacity of experiencing pain and being, being experiencing let down. I've heard this equation. I'm not sure if you've had. Many of us, we apply this to our life without even realizing it. And here's the, here's the saying, that happiness is reality minus expectations. Anyone seen this before? Happiness is, what this is saying, though you might not have heard this before, you are living by this equation. What this is saying, this equation is saying uh, that uh, many of us have learned that through disappointment that the secret to life is to lower your expectations. If you can learn to lower expectations, you'll be a lot happier. Why? Because if your expectations are great and then life comes in and like, oh, that's a letdown. And then your happiness is lower. But if you have very, very, very little expectation and you get anything, you're happy with that, right? Well, the sad truth is that this equation can creep into our faith. It can creep into our life with God. That we know that, man, if I, if I have a lot of hope for God to show up in this way, man, I don't, I don't want to be let down. So somehow we expect very little from God. We pray little. We hope little. We anticipate little. We share little with each other. Why? Oh, what if, what if reality hits? And I'm just let down. I think that could have been Thomas' mentality, that Thomas, he just watched his beloved leader killed. Furthermore, he abandoned Jesus, so he was probably distraught in his own soul about that. So when they come to Thomas and share this grand story, Thomas says, man, I can't be let down anymore. And for me, seeing is going to be believing. I'm not, I'm, not going to have, I'm not going to have my expectations up. And this is really deeply important to me. And I've seen this over in, in, in the encounters that Jesus have with people after he rose from the dead. What you will find is there's two things that you'll find in most of these stories, and it's really peculiar. The two things that you'll find in most of these stories is great worship and great doubt. It's really interesting. In a lot of the stories of the resurrected Jesus showing up, there's great worship and delight and celebration, while at the same time, there's this presence of great doubt. If you'll allow me, let's jump over to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, the resurrected Jesus had some final words he was going to share, his parting words before he ascended. We call this the Great Commission in Matthew 28. In the fi- these are the final words of Matthew's this great commission that He's sending uh, His disciples out. But when Jesus showed up to speak to the disciples, something interesting happens in verse 16 of Matthew 28. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them. Jesus said, go to Galilee. Get wait in this mountain. And when they saw Jesus, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. <laughs> when they saw Jesus... Jesus told them to wait for him in this one spot. He actually shows up, and they worshiped, but then some of them go, huh, not sold. (laughs) Not sold on this. It's so weird to me. Maybe their doubt was just disbelief. Maybe it was like, oh, this is too good to be true. Maybe it was fear of being let down again. Regardless, there is this mixture of worship and doubt and Man, it's just interesting to me. And isn't that the way it is with our life as well? Where doubt is a part of our faith in Christ. I'm going to say that again. Doubt is a part of our faith in Christ. In our culture, oftentimes, we don't allow room for it, though. I have visited with many of you in our community, and in our conversations, when we talk about our faith life and that kind of thing, after a while there will be this embarrassing confession that someone many times in our community will share of but Mark i got to be honest I I actually have doubts and it's usually followed by an apology and a little bit sense of shame and I wish I didn't have these doubts so I just want to share clearly um, that doubt is not sin doubt is is not sin. It's not wrong to have questions or uncertainty. It's not wrong. And I hope that our church is a safe place where people can bring their faith and their worship as well as their doubts and their questions to one another. I actually believe that certainty, which is the opposite of doubt, certainty can be more dangerous in your faith Certainty can be more dangerous. Why? If you're certain, you don't have to trust God. You have all your answers. You have all your certainty. You have all your conclusions. So you can take everything that fits perfectly in your mind, all your certainty, and be on your merry way without having to depend on God and trust in Christ, though things may not make sense. In the place of certainty, we are invited by God who's chosen to exist outside of our capacity of understanding God, to take our doubts. We are invited to take our doubts and walk with Christ so that they might become room for faith. Hebrews 11.1 says this, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, hope for, and assurance for what we do not see. So faith draws upon what we hope for what we do not see faith is not clarity it's or certainty it is confidence in what we hope for and its assurance in what we do not see that seems like there's a lot of room for us to have questions and doubt yet somehow find confidence and assurance in Jesus and the question is for thomas as well as for us what do we what do we do with our doubt what do we do with our doubt Do we cross our arms and walk away from Christ? Or do we hide our doubts, especially from religious people? You know, are we afraid of like actually exposing the questions that we have? Or, do we take our doubt to God? Do we take our doubt to our community? Or we actually have like courage enough to say like the Father said in Mark 24, when Jesus comes to him and asks him about uh, Jesus healing his child, and he he had doubts and this is what the man said to jesus he said i do believe help me overcome my unbelief and jesus responded with power the power to heal jesus didn't chastise jesus met this man with his deeper prayer it is so important what we do with our doubt it is so important what we do with our doubt and even more important for us in this conversation it is so much more important what Jesus does with our doubt notice how Jesus responds to Thomas Jesus doesn't ridicule Thomas for his faithlessness he doesn't chastise him for not being able to understand what he said notice what Jesus does in verse 26 back over in John 20 a week later so a week later after that first encounter with Where Thomas was missing. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time. Though the doors were locked. And I just want to say this: like, it's only been a week later, and these disciples are afraid again. (laughs) Like Jesus showed up, resurrected, he showed up, he like gave them his spirit. He said, I'm gonna give you peace. And here they are, a week later, after this mountaintop experience, now they're just back to a place of fears. Their fear was more real at this moment than Jesus' resurrection. So they were locked behind doors. And again, Jesus was then what He will always be, persistent in pursuing people. So Jesus came and stood among them and again said, Peace be with you. Then Jesus, knowing that Thomas was now in the room, and gave almost this ultimatum, I'm not going to believe unless I actually get to Him. I'm going to touch Him. Unless I touch him, I'm out. Jesus then turned to Thomas and said, Put your finger here. See my hands? Thomas, reach out. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. For Thomas, what was going to move him from a place of doubt was not a rational argument. This is going to be the case for many of us. It's not a rational argument, although there is truth. What will move them from this place of doubt was this relational encounter with the living God. That's what moves us from doubt through doubt, is a relational encounter with the living God. And Jesus invited this. Jesus grabbed his hands and welcomed Thomas to experience him. Jesus is always pursuing Jesus' people. And when this encounter happened, Jesus invited Thomas to step through his doubt, not around his doubt or back from his doubt, but step through his doubt and believe. Believe. Not be certain, but believe. Believe. The answer that many of us get when we doubt, the answer that many of us receive with the questions that we have in the back of our minds every single time we pray or we enter worship, all of those questions, the answer that we receive may not be a clear argument or a pat answer that might not move you. But what will move you through your doubt into belief is an encounter with the living Christ, with the living Jesus, who invites us to trade our doubt for belief. And what moved Thomas through his doubt was to experience Jesus' wounds. I think Thomas touching Jesus' wounds, I think there's a deeper truth to this narrative. Because I know that for many of us, the questions that we have, the doubt that we have, is not just existential. The doubt that we have comes to questions like this If God's really all powerful, then how come there's so much suffering? If God's all like, all-powerful, how come over 350 people dodge Sri Lanka on Easter? Really? Yesterday, the synagogue in San Diego, there's a shooting, really? If God's all that powerful, the suffering that I've had in my life, the silence and the prayers and the requests that I've made to God. what am I supposed to do with that? For many of us, those are where that's, that's the foundation for a lot of our doubt. And what we find in this story is there's some, for some reason, what Jesus does is not give us a clear answer, but Jesus gives us his wounds. Jesus, these are the answers we receive. In the midst of the suffering that we have, in the midst of the doubt, Jesus says, I want you to remember this touches. I want you to remember that I am a wounded God. I'm a wounded Savior. And it's interesting, in my own life, The questions that I've had, the doubt that I've had, that I've wrestled with God with, I don't have any clear answers, but there's, for some reason, I have found deep healing in the woundedness of Christ. And isn't it interesting, the resurrected Jesus, though he was alive again, he still had wounds. He wasn't perfect. He still was wounded. And I think it's because that's where we're going to find a lot of healing. That's where where we're going to find the answers that are going to move us into a place of healing and belief. It is a Jesus who invites us to take our doubts and actually touch them. Touch the woundedness. that By His wounds, we are healed. I don't fully understand it, but I've experienced it. And at this moment, with Jesus, Thomas declares, my Lord and my God... I'm not positive, but I've done a little bit of reading through the Gospels this week around this question, is where is another time where someone called Jesus God? I I can't find it. This is like one of the greatest, most uh, broad declarations of faith. Oftentimes, Jesus will be called the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the Son of Man. But here, it's my God. Thomas was transformed from this place of doubt from the place of great conviction and belief that shadows all other beliefs, all other decorations. And this is what happens when we are honest with our doubt is that it creates room for us to experience true faith, true bold belief. I believe that Thomas never would have had that experience had he not been honest with his doubts. And though we don't have the privilege to see Jesus in the bodily form here and now, Jesus then makes this statement for you and I. Verse 29, Jesus told them, because you have seen me and you have believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus was speaking to you at that moment. Jesus says that there is a blessed belief in those who haven't physically seen the resurrected Jesus. It doesn't feel like a blessing, does it? Does it feel like a blessing for you? Does anyone wish that we could have that experience? I know I do. But what does God give us to move us into deeper belief? John, who is writing this gospel, says here in verse 30, almost turns to the camera, if you will, and says this. Verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe this was written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That is the whole point of this story being told, is that you might see this and experience it in your own life and be moved to belief. We have God's Word to aid us in our belief of Jesus. We can read these accounts and we can know more about Jesus so that we can experience Him in our own life. We can take our doubts and our faith and invite Jesus to walk in our life and for us to walk in His life so that we might experience Him. We're invited to take our questions to community and see how Christ can show up in our community. In moments of prayer and devotion and the details of our day, we're invited to see Jesus and believe in Him and experience life in His name. And notice, these things are written so that you may believe. Believe. And belief in Jesus will bring about life. That is the challenging invitation of this Easter tide. We live into this season because we need to learn the power of Jesus' resurrection so that we move to a greater place of belief. It's a challenging invitation, though. I loved how author Philip Yancey, he shared this in, in a book called The Jesus I Never Knew. He said this, in many respects, I find an unresurrected Jesus easier to, to accept. If the story just ended with the cross, that would be easier to accept. Easter makes him dangerous. Because of Easter, I have to listen to his, his extravagant claims and can no longer pick and choose from his sayings. Why? Because if he rose from the dead, he truly is Lord. So you can't pick and choose him as like a model for your life. He's God. You can't pick and choose from His sayings. Moreover, Easter means He must be loose out there somewhere. He must be loose. Don't you love that? If Jesus was just dead and buried in the grave, that's okay. Confined. But Easter means that Jesus is loose out there. And if I know anything about Jesus, this is what I know what Jesus is up to out there in our world. He's pursuing people. He's pursuing people. He's pursuing you. Jesus is always pursuing people. Whether through the walls of doubt or locked doors of fear, Jesus will not stop pursuing you. Though we might reject Him and abandon Him, He will not stop pursuing you. This is who Jesus is. And this Easter season reminds us of that powerful truth. I shared this in the past, but it's worth repeating. This last year, a huge mentor and a hero from afar, Eugene Peterson, died. He's, uh, he wrote many great books, one for pastors that was deeply meaningful for me, but he also transcribed the, the Bible into the message that for many of us we read and enjoy. He's known, for, he's known for that, but he was also a pastor. At his funeral, his son, Leif, he uh, went up to, to share about his father, and he chose to say that his father pulled a great trick on everyone. Eugene Peterson was known as a man of deep wisdom who would have an answer for any question. One that would provoke uh, awe and faith in people. But in fact, he shared that his father pulled a trick because he only had one message. Only one message, and he shared it. Though he preached in the pulpit every, uh, for 30 years, he had one sermon he gave. And it was a secret that he was let in on because uh, for 50 years... While his son had his father with him, his father prayed a singular prayer over him when he was a baby, when he was a child, and when he was a grown man. He would pray this singular prayer over him, over him, over him. It was this singular prayer. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. Those truths right there, This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus was. This is who Jesus is for you. Friends, God loves you. He's on your side. Jesus is coming after you, and He is relentless. You can't stop Him. You can invite Him. You can welcome Him. Though you might be riddled with doubt, though you might have questions, God's coming after you. Eastertide could be a season where you invite Christ anew into your life more and more. You can be honest with whatever has walled you off from God, whether fear or doubt. You can, you can see how Jesus somehow has the, the tenacity to show up in places uninvited and unexpected so that we could experience peace. Peace somehow from this wounded Savior.